Hello and welcome to the OD Movement Podcast. I am Nick Castros, and in this episode, I'm joined by Laura, a person in long-term recovery. Laura's story is powerful. She walks us through her progression from alcohol to drug use, as well as how her views on drugs have changed over time. Laura talks about what it was like raising a family while being addicted. She tells me how she would plan her binges around her family activities, so she would be okay by the time her husband and kids got home. She opens up about what it was like to live the facade of a normal suburban housewife, where she was the vice president of the PTA while, on the inside, dying for substances. It took her seven years going in and out of recovery before she finally achieved long-term sobriety. Laura's substance abuse started with alcohol. However, it was pills, downers, benzodiazepines to be exact, that truly led to her undoing. The pills became an issue around the time Laura turned 30 after having surgery for ulcerative colitis. Laura got out of her addiction through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and not a drug rehabilitation program. This was because she felt a disconnect while in treatment. In her own words, over the 10 days of treatment that she was there, there was only one lesson that she could relate to, and that had to do with cross addiction. After one time in treatment, it took her seven years to reach sobriety. We talk about how changing the approach to treatment could lead to greater success for more people. Laura talks about what changed. She credits the program of Alcoholics Anonymous for changing her life. At one point, she had a sponsor who gave her a profound bit of advice. Quit the keep coming back stuff and just stay. A light bulb went off and she's been clean ever since. Laura talks about how she's been living her best life now and how her and her husband enjoy traveling. Her kids are now grown and out of the house. She just turned 52 and shares what drug education was like for her growing up. We share our thoughts on what drug education should look like and give our opinions on why the current drug epidemic came into existence. Please share this message along to anybody who might be able to benefit from it. If you enjoy the show, we'd greatly appreciate if you shared the episode on social media as it really helps build our following. Also, you can join our discussion on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at OD Movement. Now, our discussion with Laura. Addiction is really, it has no boundaries, it has no class, it has no uh, discrimination. It can happen to anybody at any time, and I'm kind of proof of that. Um, I think addiction started when I was in my late 30s, early 40s, always had kind of a tendency towards alcohol, but the pills really took off when I was in my 30s. And I'm from your average, middle-class, white bread type of family. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, walk me through a little bit your progression. What was your view on drugs growing up? Um, My view on drugs growing up is I really probably never really thought about it. Um, I did have an uncle who was adopted, my dad's brother, who was a drug addict, and he um, was a really bad drug addict. I mean, he went into like, he was like psychotic and eventually put into a home. So that was really my only understanding about drugs. And I really, at a young age, was scared of drugs because mm-hmm. of him. And most of the time he was shielded from us because I was a, you know, a little bit younger. Right. So I didn't really, wasn't really exposed to it, but I had heard about it, you know, in the background and stuff. So, so even though you weren't so much exposed to it, you were conscious of it, though? You were aware that it was going on? I was, very much so. Okay. And so- it kind of shied me away from drugs at, as a teenager. Got you, got you. But outside of your uncle, the drug environment around you, it sounds like it was pretty well non-existent. No, it really wasn't. So when did your use start? It sounds like you followed that pretty similar progression of people who started with alcohol, and then it just kind of turned into to pills. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I started drinking probably in, um, I don't know, around sophomore year with started progressing and probably by senior year I mean my friends and I were drinking all the time we would drink during lunch period at school we drink before school and we drink on the weekend Brandon I was um on drill team so I was under the athletic coach so uh, that didn't stop us from partying as much as we could but you know things kind of settled down as I had kids and became an adult but then um 
you know, is always predisposed, that word, predisposed to anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of when the, um, I picked up on the benzodiazepines and really took off with those. Now, you've always dealt with, with anxiety, right? Even when you were younger and in the, in the, before the benzos were in use. Is that right? Yes. Yes, at a really young age, I developed anxiety, and I had a few um, major depressive episodes, but mostly anxiety. Tell me what you think about the link between, or the correlation, I should say, between addiction and mental illness. Oh, I believe that they're both brain diseases and abnormalities, and I do believe there is a connection, and that is just my own personal Mm -hmm. belief. I have no, I've not studied up on it, but I just, I just, in my case, there's definitely a connection. Yeah, 50% of, uh, of people who su- suffer from a substance abuse disorder also suffer from a severe mental illness. So there's definitely, you know, that connection there. It's been proven. Um, for when you were using the drugs, even with the alcohol, what, what was the reason behind it? Were you doing it to get relief from all that anxiety? Yes, I definitely was. Um, I, you know, started using as directed and then, you know, one pill is not enough, so two is better and it just kind of progressed from there and then all of a sudden, you know, you hate who you are and you take more to, um, you know, not feel anything. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how it worked for me and it happened over a long period of time, actually. I mean, it took, you know, a good few years for me to reach the end of my highest dose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't like... jump in and start taking, you know, eight one milligram tablets at a time. <laughs> right, right. There's usually that slow progression. For me, it did follow that that similar slow progression where it wasn't an issue. It didn't seem like it was an issue until until I hit like got to the point where I was hitting rock bottom. But looking back it really was always an issue because I was always putting it in front of everything else. Yes. And my kids were um, in early elementary school when I was probably at the height of my usage before getting help. And I kind of planned my, you know, benzo binges just like you would alcohol. Wow. Yeah. You know, so I would be okay by the time they came home. Or I'd be okay by the time my husband came home and just would take more in the evening to go to sleep. And then I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd have to take some more back to sleep. And it was just a, you know, just a progression. When you were, I mean, were you using basically just to put yourself in a coma? Yes. Um, I, you know, I kind of wanted to die, but I didn't totally want to die. So I thought being in a coma would be like the next best thing. Mm-hmm. And so if you take enough benzos, you're out like a light, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I was more of a, a downer user than the upper, let's, you know, have fun and get crazy kind of user. I was like, I just want to sleep. I was both. I mean, there, I didn't really discriminate with my drug use. I, I was, I've, I've been on everything. I've used everything. But with the, the downers, something very similar happened. I got to this point where all I wanted to do was not be conscious. And for me, it was right. also, I was suicidal. And I don't know yeah. why, maybe you have an answer, but I don't know why I was got to that point where I was feeling that way. What was it for you that kind of made made those feelings come out, do you think? You know what, I realized because um, I relapsed a lot. It took me seven years um, in and out of trying to do drugs and alcohol before I finally got that I couldn't. And I would notice that each time I would relapse the with the alcohol, I think it was the allergy of the alcohol and the chemicals and the way it mixed with my body, drinking made me suicidal. Really? Yes, every time I would relapse, I would get in a deep, dark, suicidal depression. But that didn't stop me. Right. <laughs> That's crazy. You know, because yeah. there was a minute of fun there. Yeah, it's so weird that we we romanticize it and we paint this picture where it'll you know, solve our problems or take away these adverse feelings. And it's so short-lived, if it even exists at all, and then it makes us more depressed. Exactly. That's it in a nutshell. Yes, and but it doesn't stop us. You know, it's 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 crazy. It's like they say, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
going back to your progression, it started out with alcohol. You were drinking quite heavily through high school, through college, and then the pills became yeah. an issue. How long into the alcohol use or how long after the alcohol use had started? Um, the pills became an issue. I was probably in my 30s. I had had um, some surgery for um, ulcerative colitis to remove my colon, and that caused a lot of anxiety, and I couldn't drink. I couldn't eat, so I could use pills, mm-hmm. and that kind of was a substitute for a while for the drinking. So, um, you know, I started doing that, and like I said, one led to two, two led to three, and it just kind of went from there, and I ended up in, I think it was 2004 for too much usage of the benzos. My therapist suggested I go to the psych ward to get things leveled off and to maybe change my drugs. Well, that did absolutely nothing. Um, I ended up with a new psych doctor and a new prescription for the same stuff, <laughs> which, which doesn't make any sense. No. And so the the progression just kept going on. I know that you are you abstain from all substances, but you consider the the pills more so the ones that were your downfall. Had you not been introduced into the benzos, do you think that you would have continued drinking? And how long do you think that would have lasted? Um, drinking was coming in kind of like second place, and um, according to my therapist. <laughs> I'm a definite alcoholic, too, because the way I obsessed about the alcohol, the way I drank the alcohol, the way I thought about it, and how when I drank it, I had that phenomena of craving and that just that obsession with it. So I think probably a couple of years down the road, I would have been a full-blown alcoholic. Okay. So it just kind of sped up your, your progression. Yes. Now, you threw out it all, and this is something that I, I, I maintained this facade for a while. You've managed to to persevere th- um, through through the addiction, but you you, yeah. you maintained this image that, that you had a family, you went to school, and you were living a normal life. What was that like to do all of that along with this addiction under behind the scenes? Yeah, you know, it's like wearing a mask and pretending like you are two separate people. Yes. I mean, I live in a nice middle-class neighborhood. Nobody does drugs. Everybody drinks. Mm-hmm. But nobody has a problem. To be the one with the problem is kind of, there's a stigma to that. And, you know, I pretended that I was normal. I was, you know, the PTO vice president. I volunteered at school. I did everything that anybody asked me to do while inside, you know, I was trying for a benzo or a drink and I'm feeling anxious and I was pretending to be somebody that I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you bring up something and, that's yeah, so relatable with the masks. It, it it does. It's exactly what it feels like. You're not projecting your true self. Right. My husband didn't even know how addicted I was to drugs. <laughs> <laughs> how good I was. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Um, I, I'm it since is. divorced, but my wife, for the longest time, my ex-wife, didn't know either. It's amazing the lengths and the things that we're able to do to hide that that, that reality. It is. And even my relapses on alcohol and not pills, I was able to hide pretty well. You know, drinking in the closet or putting it in the solo cup and everybody thinks you're drinking orange juice as a girl. Mm-hmm. So you started getting clean in 2004, is that right? No, actually, um, it was 2007. So I didn't even try to get clean okay. after the psych ward visit. But in 2007... My, again, my therapist suggested highly that I go to rehab. And that was kind of the start of my journey into sobriety, even though it took seven years from that time for me to really understand it and surrender and to admit that I did have a problem. Tell me what that, like, those seven years were like. Well, you know, seven years is a long time to be in and out and trying to do the next right thing and couldn't. I think because I felt like I was addicted to benzos, I felt like I could drink. The hard time with that cross-addiction mm-hmm. thing, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, I went to rehab for benzos to detox, not to quit using them and not to quit drinking. Even my counselor in rehab said, you're not going to quit drinking, are you? And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't come here for that, but I did learn. At least you were honest. That benzos. Yeah, I did learn that benzos were just a form of 
alcohol, they call it freeze-dried alcohol mm-hmm. because it does the same stuff to you. So I did I did take away something, but it didn't really resonate with me until years later. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Benzos are basically the exact same thing as, as alcohol, even down to the withdrawals are, are incredibly similar. Yes, yes. You started in 2007. That was the first time that you entered into detox, but... Even at that time, you knew that you weren't going to get clean at first, right? Right. I wasn't ready to stop. And even though it probably saved my life at the time, because I was ready to quit cold turkey or to commit suicide, I wasn't sure which I was going to do because my life was just that unmanageable. Mm -hmm. So I think going saved my life, even though I wasn't totally ready to surrender, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it got me clean for a little while, long enough to kind of get my crap together, and then you then start down and spiral out and do the same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. That was 2007. What sort of, what did things look like between that point and the time that you got clean for the next seven years? Oh my gosh, well, you know, it's interesting. I was nine months sober and my father passed away suddenly from a clot to his heart and that was just crazy. So um, I actually stayed sober until the second anniversary of his death. And that was one of my big relapses because, you know, I think I was finally breathing and feeling and because I'd been sober for a little while. So that was one of my relapses. And then a couple of relapses, I was just like, you know what? I'm tired of not having fun at parties. I'm going to drink, but I wouldn't tell anybody because everybody thought I was sober. <laughs> so I would, no one will know, and, you know, nobody will know, nobody will know. And it was really weird. I finally had just had it and I drank out in public and my husband's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I've been drinking for weeks before I found it. And he's like, oh my God. <laughs> but I did have some relapses on pills as well, not just alcohol. Okay. You know, I would, my husband had an accident and had um, pain pills. So, you know, I would take those. I had a couple surgeries and ended up with a ton of pain meds. So, you know, I would take those and then finally, like, take these away from me, you know, hide them, throw them away, do whatever. So, I mean, I had had some run ins with drugs as well. Now, when you took the pain pills, were you taking them as prescribed or were you taking those to abuse them as well? Both. Okay. I mean, I, when I had my surgery, I took them as prescribed, but when my husband had his surgery, I'm like, I think you need a refill. I went down to the I kept them. <laughs> I think I need a refill. That's funny. That was exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> that insanity lasted for, for seven years for you. What? It did. What changed when you finally decided to to really give the recovery thing a shot? Well, you know, I've been an alcoholic synonymous for all that time, in and out, in and out, in and out, and I changed sponsors several times, and I had a different sponsor who kind of called me on my crap, and, you know, she said, you know what, Laura, quit, but keep coming back stuff and just stay, and I'm like, huh, I don't have to keep coming back, I can just stay, it was the simplest one-word answer, and it had a profound effect on me, and I have stayed since then. It's amazing. It's crazy. It how is sometimes weird. It's a weird the simplest answers are the, are the most the most awe inspiring, isn't it? Yes, yes. And you know, I don't know where she heard it or where she came up with that, but it just really stuck with me. And I've used it with other people too. And it's kind of the big joke around AA: quit coming back and stay. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, and this might be maybe this happened prior. But when did you recognize there was a problem and when did you come to terms with it? I probably recognized there was a problem when I was, I started doctor shopping. I had my prescription. My doctor was starting to limit my prescription of benzos. And so I went to a different doctor, got another prescription, went to another pharmacy, paid cash, you know. And um, I'm like, this just isn't normal. And then soon after I did that was when I ended up in rehab. So I think I had, you know, the knowledge then that there was a problem, but I just couldn't surrender until seven years later. Mm-hmm. I was stubborn act. <laughs> <laughs> we all are, aren't we? At least I think yes, when it comes yes. to being addicted. Yes. Tell me what it's been like since you, you found recovery in this, this 
period of sobriety that you've had? You know what? It has been absolutely fantastic. And I wish it didn't take me so long that everybody has, you know, their own journey. But, um, you know, my best friends are in recovery now uh, on the board at our Alcoholics Anonymous Club. I plan social activities with group. I have parties with my sober friends all the time. Um, it's just it's just my life now. Right. And, you know, I've had my chance to drink and try marijuana and drugs. And you know what? I blew it. So, therefore, you know, my chances are up now is kind of how I look at it. Yeah, that is a good way to look at it. Because I think that it is possible for people to responsibly indulge in, in substances. But when you become addicted, it's like becoming a pickle. You can be a cucumber or you can be a pickle, but once you're pickled, you can't go back to being a cucumber. And once you've passed... Now, somebody in a meeting said that once, and I just broke out. I'm like, but I want to be a pickle. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and being pickled sucks. It's like, no, I what? meant I wanted to be a cucumber. Right, I knew I you meant, to be yeah. Sorry, I said that backwards. I don't know my veggies. <laughs> I am a pickle. I want to be a cucumber, but it's the truth. I wanted to be a cucumber. I was, like, so despaired. <laughs> And once, like I said, once you cross that, that threshold, it's like an invisible line that it's, I don't know if you can go back from it. I don't think that you can. I don't think that you can either. And I don't know exactly when that line crossed. It was such a small step progression for me that I, I don't know when it happened, but I do know that it did happen. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. That That's interesting. It makes me think. For me, and I've said this before, I think that I was always an addict, like even before the drugs. I don't think that, at least for me, addiction isn't about drugs. It's about an obsessive compulsion to indulge yes. in pleasurable stimuli. Um, you know, it's not necessarily about a drug or a substance. And well, regardless, growing up, regardless of what that stimuli was, I had an obsession, whether it was obsessive eating, uh, obsessive video games or television watching, um, you know, no matter what, it didn't matter. It, it literally, it seems like it predated the drugs. You're right. I was like a stress eater when I was young. So I, I think I always had those isms and that obsession and the compulsion and that hole in my soul where you feel like you're not good enough and that you need something else to be good enough and to prove yourself to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think a lot of it comes back to, like you had mentioned, the masks. When you're not comfortable yes. in your true self or your genuine self and, and you're trying to have yourself be perceived as otherwise, those insecurities breed addic addiction. Right, right. It's like not being comfortable in your own skin. Yes, and today exactly I can say right. that I am. And yeah, that is a huge improvement. I can stand myself now, you know. Yes, yes. And things are, I'm assuming, maybe I'm wrong, but things are wonderful now. You're loving oh, your sober are. self. Yes. Living your best life. Yes. I, I think I am. You know, my kids are grown. Um, they're out of the house. It's just my husband and I and a puppy and my other dog. And we're both kind of semi-retired. And it's just great. We enjoy ourselves. We travel. We um you know, I'm still able, now that I've been sober for a few years, I'm able to go to those parties and maybe a brewery every once in a while. I mean, I don't go all the time, but I can still go to those places now and mm -hmm. have fun mm -hmm. and not have to drink. And it's so weird, at least for me, like, I can do the same thing. And um, and it doesn't even bother me anymore. Like, the me obsession neither. isn't there. And it's like, I would have never in a million years thought that obsession could be lifted. I'm with you. It took me seven years to lift that obsession, but now, it, yeah, it's gone. I can go to those places that I couldn't go to before, and I don't really have an issue with it. Now, if I stay too long, I may get an issue, but, right, right. you know, I know myself well enough and what I can handle. I'm curious. For me, I, I don't know what you know about my story, but I, I overdosed in 2014, and it, the with the obsession, it was almost like it was lifted instantly, which was really weird for me. I think it's a little bit unusual. Okay. How long did it take for you to get to that point? How long did you still have those? Like even the cravings, really. After the overdose, there's like, it was just like a, cha a complete change in my perspective. How long did it take for you to get to yeah. that point? Probably the full seven years, I believe, because I kept dabbling. I kept not believing I had a problem. I kept 
you know, thinking I could do it, that it'd be different, you know, the insanity thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it just, it just, I, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And I was definitely on the slowly end of the spectrum. Right. Okay. Yeah. I totally get that. And like I said, I think that's a far more common path that people take. Switching gears a little bit, tell me a little bit about what your substance abuse was growing up and what do you think drug education and proper drug addiction education would look like? Well, I'm going to be 52 here next week and um, I'm a product of the 70s and 80s is when I grew up and there wasn't really any drug education back then. When I was a senior in high school, MAD was just coming out, Mothers Against Drunk mm -hmm. Driving, and I remember they were at our school during a senior assembly doing a presentation of some sort, and me and my friends, we were drunk. Really? <laughs> yeah, wow. I just vaguely remember that was my first real introduction, I think, into an educational thing, which, of course, I don't remember anything because who was paying attention? We were going to the bathroom every five minutes. <laughs> it's taking a shot. Yeah, pretty much, you know, so we didn't really have, and it was really what I knew from my family, which was very little, mm -hmm. and most of, you know, it's funny, my mom said she would have known what I was doing in high school with all the drinking, that she would have had me in some kind of program at a young age, instead of, you know, when I was 40. Mm -hmm. So there was, you know, those tendencies were there. But like I said, nobody knew, and it was kind of normal. Everybody did it. Right. You know, drinking and driving was just what we did on the weekends back then. That was the same thing for me, you know, yeah. Scary stuff, you know, and I preach to my girls that they're going out. I'm like, you get an Uber, you have a designated driver. That stuff was unheard of back then. It's so crazy how things have changed. Do you? Th it really is. Do you think that drug education, substance abuse education – should be something that is touchdown in schools? Oh, absolutely. My kids did, and I don't know how much good it did them. They don't do drugs, but um, they were product of the D.A.R.E. program. Yeah, so was I. And it, yeah, our community, it's from kindergarten to sixth grade. Okay. Which each year they have a different lesson plan, and then they have this big D.A.R.E. graduation ceremony and stuff. So, you know, um, that's that's the drug education that I'm aware of. And then, of course, you know, me with my problems, of course, I've talked to my children. And, mm -hmm. you know, with their uncle's problems, he was adopted, did some crazy stuff. And so I've let them know what drugs can actually do to you. Right. Besides, you know, make you fun. <laughs> yeah, right. Which is an illusion. It doesn't really exist. It's just your perception of things. Right. Right. So D.A.R.E., I didn't have the best of experiences with D.A.R.E. I, I think that they they do too much of kind of a blanket discussion on drugs, which I think okay. comes off as a little hypocr hypocritical. Yes. At least that was how I interpreted it as far as when they're saying, you know, we should never drink, but yet all of my teachers at the time are drinking. It was confusing. To oh, me. of course they you are. <laughs> yes. So I, yes, I, I think it would be good to have people real life experience come yeah. in and say, Hey, this is what happened to me. I'm just like you. I'm just like your mother. Mm -hmm. You know, it can happen and it's not good. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that that would be a huge a huge win if we had people who were actually impacted and affected tell these stories. Yes. I, I don't think that that just trying to use scare tactics to get people to not use substances is the best approach, which it seems like, at least, like I said, in my opinion, that's what D.A.R.E. did a lot of the time. Yeah, because you know they're going to try it. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, somewhere along the line, they're going to try something. Yes. And they just have to know what what the consequences may be. My daughter got in trouble when she was 16 for underage drinking, but she was leaving a party because they were doing drugs that she was uncomfortable and happened to get caught. Wow. So she you was know, trying so to I do was, that I was right like then? A, I was upset with her for being at a drinking party, but proud of her for leaving because they started doing drugs. You know, mm -hmm. so what, where's that, you know, balanced? That's a good point. 
it, there, yeah. it's hard. And I don't know if there's a right answer to, to determine that balance. And yeah, it's crazy, you know, because like you said, crazy. Kids, kids are going to experience or experiment with things, but what is the, the proper approach to informing them on the, the impact that these things can have? Yeah, you know, that's like the million-dollar question. If I had the answer to that <laughs> and how to take care of this, you know, drug epidemic that we have going on right now, I mean, that would just be – I wish I had the answers. Yeah, yeah, I know. Or me too. <laughs> that would be great. That's that's part of the reason why I do these podcasts is to, to talk with people and get their perspective and opinions on what we could be doing, what might work better. Speaking of the drug epidemic, why do you think that we're seeing that right now? You know, I think it's kind of twofold. I think, you know, like we hear in the news, it's the big pharma companies, you know, and I think it's the um, the, the opioids that they're over-prescribing. I mean, I had two surgeries in like six months. I had kidney stone and deviated septum. I ended up with 80 Percocets when I was done taking them as prescribed. Wow. That's how many I had left over from two surgeries. And they weren't the low dosage either. They were the high dosage. That's insane. And, you know, who? I took like maybe five at each surgery. Who needs that many drugs? Nobody. No, nobody. It's crazy. And for somebody who has a tendency to be addicted like me, you know, I, I, obviously I still have them. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I know how hard they are to get. And what if I need them? I mean, my husband has some 10 them, but I know they're in this house somewhere because that's my crazy-ass thinking. Wow. That I, I can't throw them away. Right, Heaven you need them I just, need to, just to be safe. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, if I'm desperate enough, I may be able to find them. I don't know, but it's just the security blanket for me. That's crazy. But you, it is crazy. <laughs> that's the insanity of addiction, you know? It, it's the things that it makes us do. You bring up a really yeah. good point with the the prescribing of drugs. Prior to 1996, when Purdue Pharmaceuticals came out with OxyContin, opioids were only prescribed to terminal patient patients with acute pain, and we saw a change. Wow. Yeah, we saw a change in perspective in the 90s. Really going a little bit before that, when they instituted uh, pain management as the fifth vital sign, which happened in the 80s. But prior to then, okay. we uh, we saw or we only prescribed opiates, like I said, to acute patients with that were terminal, and then we shifted to giving them to long term patients for chronic illness, which I don't I think was like one of the worst mistakes in American medicine. Yeah, I believe you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and that's, then, you know, of course, it moved them all into heroin because they can't get uh, you know the drugs that they want, so they right. just want to do the street stuff. God only knows what they're, you know, mixing that with. Mm-hmm. All the fentanyl and, and that's fentanyl. What's causing, yeah, and that's what's causing all the issues. And it's, it's difficult to come up with the perfect answer, but what do you think we can do differently? What do you think would help address these issues? Mm, I don't know. Hitting, you know, hitting the doctors where it hurts, um, talking to the kids about, you know, in a different way than what we have talked about here today, you know, maybe real life experiences. The people I am friends with in AA are people I probably never would have dreamed in a million years that I would be best friends with. Mm -hmm. You know, people who have done the heroin and the the drugs and drinking and have been to jail and have been on the streets and, you know, it's just crazy what people have been through to get their their drugs or their alcohol and where it has taken them. People need to know what that does to people. And, you know, treatment is important. It's so hard for the people who really need it to get into treatment or not need it, but, you know, want it, desire it, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. the lower income people. It's hard for them to, to find a place to go. Yeah. Yeah, it it really is. I work uh, with a program called Hope Not Handcuffs, and it's really sweet. People can either go into a police station or apply online, and we will find the treatment for them, which is really, really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. That is fantastic. I know there's a few places around here that have, 
you know, addiction centers and stuff, but really it's it's hard to it's hard to get a bed because they're so overwhelmed with people. Mm. Yeah. You know, I live in um the Dayton, Ohio area, which, you know, has been on the news as the epicenter for heroin use, you know. Right. So it's it's crazy. Yeah, it like I said, there there's no easy answer if we knew the answers these wouldn't be big problems so it is like you said it's just insane it is insane and it's hitting you know people in my age bracket are starting it's really because you know i'm getting older people are getting chronic pain and can't get their drugs down because they're tightening up on things and they're moving on to street drugs yeah and it's crazy it's absolutely crazy yeah, the heroin addict of 10 years ago looks completely different than the heroin addict of today. And we still have this yes. this preconceived ideology as to what that person looks like, and it's just not true anymore, you know? You're right. When I first went into AA, I was scared to death at what I was going to see because I was so much better and so different and had... You know, a good family, a good background, and I walked in and I saw people just like me. Mm-hmm. And I was expecting the man under the bridge in the trench coat, you know, like you like you hear people say. That's so funny. Everyone always goes to under the bridge when we talk about addiction. <laughs> that is the preconceived right? notion of what people think. It's amazing to me. And that's what I thought, too. It, yeah. It's just so weird. Yeah, yeah, I was scared to death, and I had a friend go with me, and we both looked at each other and were like, this is just weird, you know, and both of us agreed that they weren't my type of people, and that Mm -hmm. kept my addiction going because I thought I was so unique and so different, and my addiction wasn't bad enough to be in these rooms, but, you know, I have since learned better. Yeah, that's a really good point, too, and I think something that anyone who struggles with addiction and successfully gets out of it realizes is we think that we are different or special or unique in some sort of way and we're all the same Mm -hmm. you know in more ways than we're not you're correct you are so right and it's just that feeling i think that we have that emptiness and that hole in the soul that we're trying to fill with the drugs and the alcohol we all have experienced that not feeling good enough and you know, and using substances to make you feel better and to make you feel more a part of. And I think that's a common thread through most of yes. the people that I talk to in addiction. I think one of the, more than anything, what addiction is, is it's a lack of community. And you nailed it when you just said that we're trying to fit in, we're trying to, you know, fill this this community. And we're when we become addicted, we're attempting to do so artificially through substances. So that's a really good point that you brought up. Yes. Now I love my community now of sober people. Right. You know, I've totally done a 180 and I don't know what I would do without the friends that I have in recovery. Those are my friends today. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, my husband drinks on occasion. He does not have a problem with alcohol, but our friends and, like, neighbors and his group of friends still drink. And, you know, and I'm able to hang with them without a, too much of a problem. You know, I drink mm-hmm. my Perrier or my lemonade, and all is well, and I drive home, you know? Right. You engulf yourself in this community of, of sober people, and at first it's, like, scary because you think that these people are never the type of people, are not my type of people. But once you, right. you know, take down those walls and give them a chance, you realize those are exactly your people. Well, it's really funny. I'm a 52-year-old straight woman with a husband and kids. My best friend in recovery is 35, lesbian, <laughs> likes to fish, and likes to, you know, shoot guns, likes to kayak. I don't like any of that crap. Wow. But yet she is my favorite person in, in the program and out of the program, too. We are just... Two peas in a pod, even though we're so cool. completely different, you know? Right. Yeah, that's so amazing. It's, that's it's awesome. Weird. Yeah, I never would have met her or been friends with her any other way. Mm-hmm. And she's my go-to person if I'm feeling squirrely, you know? The person to text, the person who helps me get out of jams besides my sponsor, you know? Right. She's but... the person I call first. That's so cool. And it's like if you don't give these people these chance to... 
to be a positive impact and influence on you, then you're going to miss out. So that's awesome that you guys have that connection. That is so cool. It is very cool. It's very cool. And I'm, I'm glad that I can recognize how cool it is, you know, because before I'd be like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, you wouldn't think twice about it before, but now you, you have a gratitude and you're, you're appreciative of it. Oh, I am so grateful for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous as friends that I have that have kept me on the straight and narrow, really. I mm-hmm. mean, without them, I feel so accountable to my friends in the program that I really hope and pray that I don't feel the need to ever go back out and do what I was doing before. Right. But you only have today. We have to be focused on living in the present and enjoying today because it's all that we have. You know, yesterday is gone. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. So you've got to appreciate right. the now. I, I want to. You got that right. I want to talk about your thoughts on treatment. Walk me because you you spent five years or excuse me seven years going in and out of of treatment, and you you had mentioned that you wish it didn't take so long for for you to get to this point where you're at now. Would there have been an alternative approach to the treatment that would have helped you get it sooner? Do you think? I don't know because I'll tell you what I told you I was very stubborn, and when I went to treatment. I went about an hour and a half away from where I live in Columbus, and you know, I went against medical advice. So I was already feeling, I'm not like these people, I'm different, I need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. So I was one of the right mind frame, really, to get recovery at that time. Because I didn't, I was just refused to look at similarities. All those people were, you know, on heroin and meth and drinking like crazy and had jail time and was court ordered and you know all this stuff and I'm like I am not no 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 I'm like I'm out of here (laughs) yeah it was easy for you to to kind of alienate yourself because you felt like you weren't on their level yeah yes and you know those the people I felt like when I was in rehab more than anything I felt like I got contacts to get more drugs (laughs) That's so weird. Yeah, that happens so often. Yeah, I'm like, well, if I ever needed anything, I've got phone numbers now. You know, (laughs) I know who to call. Right. That's crazy. And that happens all the time. People will go to jail or go to treatment and become a better drug addict. You hear so often that someone is snorting heroin when they get out of treatment. That's when they start shooting it. That's, That's crazy to me. And that's so true. And it's such a reality. Yeah, I think I told you before that I feel like I have a high bottom and when I was in treatment, I felt like I was the goody two-shoes of treatment, you know, like the Pollyanna of treatment, (laughs) because everybody seemed so much worse off than me. You know, okay, I was taking 8 to 10 benzos. Well, you know, the guy next to me was taking 20, Mm -hmm. you know? So I felt like, you know, big deal. I took 8, you know? Or I'm drinking too much, big deal. I'm not drinking gallons and gallons and gallons every day. I'm a binge drinker. Right. Right. So I just, I felt different and I just, I couldn't get it. I just couldn't, I just couldn't sink into my thick skull. (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, I can totally, totally relate to just about everything you're saying. And that to me is one of the, the things that could be approved upon with treatment is we don't differentiate between treatment at all. And I think that might be be hurting us because when you're you're treating an 18 year old who maybe habitually smokes pot and does cocaine on the weekends, the same as a 40-year-old heroin addict, they, they aren't going to be able to be relatable in a lot of ways. You are exactly right. I think that is a great point. I would have done much better with a different type of addict, mm-hmm. not those low-bottom, you know, heroin users, even though I feel like there's not a problem with them today because I get it. Right. But at that time, I did not. Right. It made it not relatable. Exactly. There was one lesson in those 10 days when I was in treatment that I could relate to. And that was the one about cross addiction and the one when they talked about pills and the cross addiction and the benzos being freeze-dried alcohol. One time in 10 days did I feel like I understood what was happening. Wow. And that was your first time time in treatment, right? Yeah, that was just me going through the motions the rest of the time. That's amazing. Now, I only went to treatment once. I went to the psych ward once and to, to addiction treatment once. And that that's my whole repertoire of treatment. Okay, so you went into treatment once, and then after one time of treatment, it 
seven years later is when you got clean. Is that right? Pretty much. Pretty much. So the never totally going to AA. As one of my friends said, I was kind of okay. the poster child of keep coming back. I would, you know, go back out for two weeks, three weeks, a couple of months, and then I'd always go back to AA. But oh. I was, it was a revolving door, revolving door. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that. That's yes. so cool. So AA is really what's gotten you clean. It wasn't treatment that that really initiated it for you. That's awesome. Yeah, AA has eventually, yes, once I finally gave into it, I think it has really saved me and changed me as a person for the better. I didn't realize that it was like very, very strongly AA driven. I I thought that you had more experience uh, with treatment. Yeah, no, no, no. And um, where I live, there's a ton of clubs and AA meetings. I mean, really... So you have to be able to find a meeting. You're pretty stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're everywhere. I live eight minutes from the clubhouse in my neighborhood or in my area, and I worked five minutes from the one in the other area. Oh, cool. So I have no excuse not to go to meetings. Right. And, and to be a part of. You know, it's right there. It's in my face. I could, you know, practically walk there if I wanted to. Right. I don't want to, though. Take note of that. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I'd rather drive, especially if you're storming where you're at. Right. The AA, uh, I don't know exactly what the figures are off the top of my head. I don't think that it works for everybody. I think there are all all other alternatives out there that work. And to me, I feel like we're missing a lot of people. Because if you don't fit into the AA bucket or the the treatment bucket, which is very, very similar in and dra- uh, driven by AA that we're missing missing people that we could be helping. You're right. And I do have a couple of people that I know who are sober who choose not to go to AA. And they're kind of, um, they're sober, but they're not completely happy mm-hmm. because they're not learning this new way of life. They're just learning how to quit drinking or just be sober. They're not embracing life and learning to live life on life terms, mm-hmm. which is what the AA program kind of does. It yeah. kind of gives you a little bit more than just not drinking. Yeah. It, to me, the biggest it's, thing, AA for me, the the most important benefit that I get from AA, well, NA really, because that's the program that I, I go to, is the community. I think that, that yes. having that community is so invaluable. I think that it's what we need and what we use drugs a lot of times to fill. Yes, 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 yes. And like with my group of friends, I mean, I'm the social chair of the club, so I have a group of like 35 going to a baseball game tomorrow night. And then on Sunday, there's five of my closest friends were going to see a, a show at the art center, you know? So, so cool. I, we're busy, we're doing stuff, we're having fun, and we're sober. Mm-hmm. And we remember what we do. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> we exactly. We, our car. we can recall <laughs> the entire evening. Yes, yes. Which is different for some of us and for most of us. Yeah, it's something totally new and unexperienced you know, until until we we give it a try. Right. But I've had people ask me before, do you need AA or NA to get sober? And I, I tell them, I, I don't think that you necessarily do. I think that it helps, but... If you don't have AA or NA, you need to find some group to be a part of. I think that is something that is necessary to be sober. I really, really do. I I agree with you. I have some friends who do the Celebrate Recovery. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And through a church thing, you know, some people do that, but um, AA just works for me. Right. Um, and you know, I, I don't understand it. I don't know why. Um, it just does. You know, I wish yeah. I could explain it. Go with what works, and that's what's most important. Whether it be AA, uh, even medically assisted treatment, if you're finding success with that, I'm not going to tell somebody not to to do it because that would just be foolish. Right. Non, right. Non-traditional twelve-step meetings. Uh, a lot. There's a lot of church, like you had mentioned, church-driven programs, and whatever works for you. It's it's about about finding what works. Right. And with the church-based programs, I don't have an issue with that. I mean, I grew up in a very religious household, 
But, you know, there's a difference between the religion and the spirituality thing, and I don't really go to church like I used to when I was growing up, but I feel like I'm more spiritual, and mm-hmm. I get that from the meetings and That's the people. That's a good point, and that is so yeah. true. Yes, I, uh, I can totally relate, and I feel very, very much the same. I, I still go to church. Uh, I'd probably go with less frequency than I did growing up. But I'm such a much more spiritual person. I pray and I meditate every day. And that is where I I get my spiritual fulfillment and where I think the growth comes from. I definitely agree with that. And, you know, it's part of AA brought me to that point. I don't want to harp that, you know, AA, 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 it's what worked for me. Right, And that's what brought me to my higher power. That's what brought me to be okay with myself and, to just live this new sober life. That's, mm-hmm. that's what worked for me and how it happened. And go with what works for you. I think AA, they tell you anybody can find success in this program, and it's true. Anybody can. A lot of people aren't willing to to sacrifice their – I think a lot of times they think it's their individuality that they're sacrificing, but it's not really the, mm-hmm. the case. A lot of people, I just think, are afraid After- to give it a try. Yeah, after four and a half years of finally staying sober out of the 12 it's taken me, you know, it's been 12 years since I went to rehab and I'm sober four and a half years. That That's one thing that I think turns people off with treatment, though, too, is it's so rigidly conforms to AA and NA practices. Right. Which, I, like I said, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think NA and AA are great, but I think that we should do more, do a better job differentiating between treatment and recovery. But what do I know? Very good point. You know, I, I just think that that would increase the appeal of, of getting treatment. Yes. And I think maybe, you know, if you did differentiate the recovery from the treatment, you might have a little more success of getting people to try it out. Mm-hmm. Like they say, only one in 10 people struggling with substance abuse disorder actually seeks out treatment, which it's sad when you think about it. It really is. We are um, of the few lucky ones. Yes. Yes. Very true. Yes, and I count my blessings, and I am grateful that, you know, I have a seat in that program at this time. And it's hard to say that you're a grateful alcoholic addict, but you know what? I've, I've finally come to that realization that, you know, my experience has brought me to the place that I am in today. And today I'm happy, joyous, and free, and I, I wouldn't change a thing. That's so funny, Laura. That's exactly how I feel. Before my addiction, awesome. I I didn't have purpose. I didn't feel like I had a purpose. And th- Me neither. You know, and through my addiction, through doing these podcasts, through meeting amazing people who, who can re- have relatable experiences, I've found my purpose. I I, I love so doing awesome. it, you know? And, and I wouldn't change that a thing for awesome. the world because it's what got me here. I love what you're doing. I think it's fantastic, and it's something that people, you know, can just listen to. They don't have to be in a program. They can just still be, you know, addicted and maybe find some experience, strength, and hope in what some of the people on your podcast are saying, and maybe they can relate and maybe eventually get help, and that's awesome. Right. Thank you. I I really appreciate that, Laura. You obviously do a lot for the community around where you live. And you run a blog. How, tell me about your blog. How long have you been doing that for? You know, I've been doing the blog for about a year. And it really just kind of started out on kind of a lark. You know, somebody suggested, well, you should do a blog. You have such an interesting story. And so I'm like, okay, I'll give it a try. And, you know, sometimes I write, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I write a lot. Sometimes I write a little. And it just kind of has grown in the last year and like I said I don't really advertise it it's just kind of organic um, readers I have told a few friends about it and they read it but other than that I don't have a ton of readers <laughs> <laughs> but it's but I just figured out how to do the tagging thing so I've gotten more since I started doing that I just figured out tagging too that's so funny I I just that I, is great <laughs> it still doesn't make sense to me like I don't think that it I guess it serves a purpose I used to think it was stupid but now I see that it yes. does serve a purpose and it actually does something. But I probably tell me. It does. Tell me your thoughts on tagging because I probably don't have the best understanding of it as it is. My thoughts on what? I'm sorry. On tagging. How does it tell me? Like, how does it work? You just put in a keyword and then people that search that word, you show up, right? 
Exactly. That's how I understand it. And I thought it was, I didn't know how to do it because I was old. I don't think you're old. So maybe it wasn't just me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can, like I said, I can totally relate. And I don't think it has to do with being old. I just thought it was stupid. Like, I didn't get it. Yeah, but it's made a big difference. Yeah, huge. It's amazing. <laughs> yes. So I don't know how you found me, maybe from the tagging. That, you know but, what? It's um, funny. That's exactly what it was. I was searching searching tags for people like in recovery or sobriety or similar stories that, that I could relate to and would share their story. So I found you through tagging, yes. Okay, interesting. And I've got a few others, I think, who have found me that way. So I have people from other countries reading it, and I think that's just weird. Isn't that cool? I did a podcast with somebody from Macedonia. Which, oh, that's awesome. It, yeah, it was really awesome. And it was so interesting to to get uh, an international perspective on addiction because they viewed it completely differently than what we do in the United States. It's really? Like, I'll have to, I haven't listened to that one yet. I'll have to, to search yeah, that one out. Yeah, check it out. I'll, I'll text you the link. But it's like it's almost like encouraged. Okay. He's like, if, if you're not addicted, you're seen as like, what, what do you have to live for? Like it was just really, really weird to hear hear his perspective oh that is different i was going to ask if it was the same but apparently it's not so i will look forward to to that yeah y'all definitely like i said i'll send it to you so let me know your thoughts but anyways yeah the podcast is awesome or the blog is awesome everybody listening should go check out laura's blog Uh, getting back to you yeah of course it is fantastic i i really have enjoyed what i've read thus far Getting back well, to thanks. You're inspiring me to write some more. I'll probably write about this conversation. Oh, perfect. I'm so glad that I can. That's what we're here to inspire each other, right? Yes, definitely. Getting back to, to my questions here, I just have a few left and then I'll, I'll let you be on your beautiful weekend. What do you think of the social stigma attached to substance abuse and addiction? Oh my gosh, I think it's horrible. Um, there's definitely a stigma attached to it, and I believe. You know, that I'm just now starting to admit to people, like, outside of my circle that I have a substance abuse problem. Before, mm-hmm. I'm like, ooh, I don't want people thinking, you know, badly of me or differently about me. But you know what? After four and a half years, I'm like, I don't really even care anymore. Right. And it's who I am. It's part of who I am. So I'm not being so secretive about it anymore, but um, I definitely believe there is still a stigma attached to it and that is something that I hope we can work on changing I used to feel the exact same way and now now I like advertise <laughs> I'm very open yes. about about my my past just because I feel like if by me advertising my experience it'll inspire somebody who's struggling with theirs maybe to to check it out and, and find some strength and hope that's I totally agree with that and that's kind of the conclusion that I have finally come to that you know just maybe you can plant the seed somewhere and be the the hope that somebody needs to get help right yeah it's so cool and it's it's a great I've gotten some great feedback where where people have been like you know your blog or your podcast or your blog um really inspired me I, you're an inspiration and it, it's a very humbling and incredible feeling to get to get those compliments that's awesome. I mean, the people who are searching for that stuff obviously are looking for something mm-hmm. and looking for something to help. I mean, I have a friend who knows he's a functioning alcoholic. He admits he's a functioning alcoholic, but he's not going to do anything about it. He likes it. Mm-hmm. But I think the people who want to change are searching for those pod, podcasts and blogs and answers, you know, Googling, looking on the internet, because it's kind of like secretive. Nobody has to know they're looking. Right, right. And a lot of times I think these people feel as though they have to do it behind closed doors. So Right, part of that stigma. Mm-hmm. Totally yeah. agree. Yeah. One last question. This has been awesome, Laura. Thank you so much for coming on. What do you think oh, sure. of, and we'll have to do this again. This has been great. I want to keep up with you. And, and how do you think we can better combat the problem of substance abuse and addiction in society today? Wow, again, that is like the million-dollar question. I'd be rich <laughs> if I knew that answer. This is true. <laughs> I mean, really, I just, I, so, you know, I pray just about every night if I don't fall asleep first that, you know, <laughs> somebody somewhere comes up with an answer to this problem. I don't have the answer. I don't even act like I know the answer, but somebody somewhere has got to figure this out, Yeah, you know, because it's, it's scary. 
somebody somewhere. And I think that's why we do this by talking to as many people as I can and getting as many perspectives, bringing as many perspectives as possible to the table. We just might figure it out, you know? If we keep talking about it, we just may figure it out. <laughs> you know, because, you know, why not us? You know, I say somebody, it could be us that figures right. it out. Why not? Well, that's all of the questions that I have for you, Laura. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on, for doing You're this. You're very welcome. I appreciate you letting me share my thoughts and my stories with you and with your um, listeners. Your story. Like I said, I feel like I don't have anything to add to the, you know, arena, but, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to it anyways. I feel like you don't give yourself enough credit. Your story is strong and oh. it can certainly inspire people, Laura. Thank you. Thank you. I, I have a hard time believing that, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. And you need to believe it because it is true. Do you have anything that you want to add okay. before we sign off? Um, you know, I don't think I do. I think this was a great experience. I'm glad you reached out to me, and I'm glad I accepted your offer to um, talk and, and share this. It's, it's kind of getting me out of my comfort zone a little bit, and that's, that's not a bad thing. 